0: Good morning everyone and welcome. My name is Beverly Lapp and I direct the convocation program here and have been involved in um, this four-day visit of David Myers to the Goshen College campus and Goshen community. David is senior advisor to the FEMA administrator in his um, work with the Um, faith-based initiatives with the Department of Homeland Security and he will tell us more about his role there. As I mentioned, he's been here at Goshen College, um, will be here for four full days. Yesterday he spoke in at least three classes, recent American history, social welfare policy. He spoke to the entire first-year class in their learning community course um, and gave the um, Yoder Public Affairs lecture in this space last night. During his time here, he's also meeting with Goshen Hospital personnel, with pastors and civic leaders, uh, with Goshen College student leaders and um, campus administrators, and he's preaching at College Mennonite Church on Sunday morning. He's also attending the baseball game with Bluffton College tomorrow afternoon, or Bluffton University. Today, or as you can see, ben, David's been very generous with his time. I think we're, we're really working him hard, but... He's been so gracious and has a wonderful story to tell. And today he will tell us how a former Goshen College baseball player ended up working in the Obama administration, or as his title is is titled, An Unpredictable Pathway to Presidential Appointee. There will be time for questions, so we invite those. Um, And please join me now in welcoming David Myers.
1: Good morning, and thank you, Bev, for that very warm introduction. And uh, it has been a bit of a whirlwind, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. So it's so good to be here and to see some very old friends, uh, friends that I've uh, had for over 30 years here, um, and other acquaintances as well. So I I do want to say... um, a little bit, uh, just at the very outset here, before I uh, begin my more formal remarks about my work, because they're not going to be included in my formal remarks, uh, and that is that um, my I'm the director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, most of our work is with FEMA. A great percentage of our work is in FEMA, uh, and FEMA, of course. Uh, works in disasters and emergencies, national disasters and national emergencies. And uh, we were, uh, the, the, um, the center uh, relates to the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. We're actually affiliated with the White House. So um, I'm uh, privileged to be able to be here this morning in that role. I'm also privileged to be here Uh, at Goshen College as a former very spotty second baseman for the Maple Leafs for one year. So let's not try to emphasize that part of my visit, please. (laughs) Uh, I'm actually feeling a little discombobulated this morning, so I I need to get some basic things straightened out. I travel a lot, so sometimes just basic things uh, kind of get jumbled in my head. Um, Can anybody have the time? What time is it? Oh, it's 10.05. Okay. Great. Um, how, how, about, uh, how about the date? What's today's date? I'm sorry? 18th. 18th of March? All right. March 18, 2016. Um, and, and what season are we in? <laughs> Please, I'm, I need some help. <laughs> oh, you, you cut into my thunder. You're right. It's... Well, let's first of all talk about spring, right? It is spring, um, and I've actually been seeing some trees about ready to pop if they haven't already popped around campus. It's just wonderful to see. So I, I know it's springtime, but if it's March, there's another time going on, and uh, we already know what that is. It's March Madness. It's college basketball time. Uh, that's the time of year when if you're a basketball fan, you go a little nuts. And even if you're not a fan, uh, if you're a Goshen College student this year, you've had your own March Madness the last couple of weeks. So, a huge congratulations to the Leafs women's team and what a run it had. March Madness, the time you go a little nuts because your team is in the tournament. But there's another reason it's madness it's because no matter how the brackets are organized, there's always been as many upset losses as there have been predictable wins. Just yesterday, of all the games that were played, half of them were won by the underdogs. That makes for fun, and it makes for crazy. March Madness. There's one thing that has been completely predictable about the tournament. However, the number 16 team, which always plays the number one team in the region, the number 16 team has never won, not once. It just doesn't happen. Perhaps, maybe someday it will, maybe this year, because there's some games on tonight where that's going to be the case. But the path is just too steep. The odds are too great for it to happen. All the other games are up for grabs, but not the ones between number one and number 16. You might have said the same thing about the path I was on before the presidential appointment. The most predictable thing you could have said about me is that I would never, ever be in the place that I am now. If someone could have given, if someone would have given a hundred possibilities of where I'd end up, and being a presidential appointee was one of them, I would have been, it would have been number 100 on the list. I would have been uh, number 100 seed. Let me tell you a little bit about myself so that you understand this. I was born into a conservative Mennonite family out of Pennsylvania. It was a family of six kids. I was number five. I had four older sisters and a younger brother. My dad was a truck driver with an eighth-grade education. My mom was a nurse's aide with a seventh-grade education. Like most conservative Mennonites, we didn't get involved in the wider community. My parents never even voted. From kindergarten through college, I was an average student at the very best. I went to four different colleges, declared four different majors. My first major was phys ed because I had been a jock in high school and it's the only thing I felt smart about. When I finally graduated, it was with a B.S. in general studies, which is a B.S. degree, which. <laughs> As one of my bosses said, that means you know a little bit about a lot. One of the four colleges I attended, as has been noted, was Goshen for one year in the middle 1970s. I was intimidated because everyone else seemed smarter than me. When I went to convocation, for example, like today, I sat near the back by myself. I sat quietly in classes, Afraid of sounding dumb. I had no idea what I was doing. By the way, this no idea what I was doing is going to be getting repeated here. So I'm going to ask you to help me repeat it when I get to it. So let's practice a little bit. So when I say this, I'd like for you to say, had no idea what I was doing. doing. Let's try it one more time. right, very good. I think you're ready to go. When I finally went to seminary, I started doing a little bit better in my studies, started asking questions in my classes, started to feel more comfortable in my own skin, held some student leadership positions. But it was pretty clear that I wasn't one of the A students, wasn't going to be a theologian. So I became a minister. had no idea what I was doing. I did that for nine years in the middle 80s and early 1990s, then I went through a crisis of faith, so I quit being a pastor and became a hotshot air freight driver in Chicago. What that means is is that there is air freight that has to be taken very quickly to the airport so it can be flown across the country or across the world for some some reason. Uh, For example, Let's say that there's a West Virginia mining, big mining machine, coal mining machine, that's the size of this building, and uh, it has a little piece that goes kaput. They have to run that machine 24 hours a day in order to make any profit whatsoever. And that little piece is made and manufactured in Geneva, Switzerland, or someplace in Switzerland. So you have to go to the airport. You get called on the van. You go to the airport. You pick up this little piece, and you drive it from O'Hare Airport to West Virginia overnight. It costs more to drive it from the O'Hare Airport to West Virginia than it did to ship it from Switzerland, but that's hotshot air freight. So, um, and one of the things that happened uh, is that I had to visit a lot of docks, a lot of freight loading docks in Chicago, and um, some of those were some of the most kind of concerning times in my life when you drive up to a dock and you get um, you get dockmen there, you get longshoremen there that are loading your docks. So uh, that was something I had no idea what I was doing. That didn't work out very well. So I got a job in social services. I directed a program in Chicago that served homeless men that were impacted by HIV-AIDS. I did that for a year and a half, and then got a job as an executive director of a small homeless organization in a suburb just north of Chicago. You get the idea. I did that for four-plus years. I went up with more enthusiasm the next day. I did that for four-plus years, then became an executive director of an organization working with homeless youth on the south side of Chicago. Yep, you guessed it. That's much better, thank you. Teen living programs uh, hired me. Uh, It had been in existence for about 15 years, uh, and it had its heyday already, and they had gone through four executive directors in six years, and so the wheels were coming off. So they were desperate, so they hired me, and um, Uh, We were able to, uh, finally, after going through about three years of turmoil, uh, we started to get some traction, started to do some interesting things. Uh, We hired great, creative, highly trained staff. Uh, We did some unique things that um, started some of those in other organizations. Uh, We started having good results as well. Many of our youth began to actually become independent when they went through our residential programs. Uh, We started getting recognized for it. We started having funders come to us rather than us going to the funders. We had a great and growing group of volunteers. It was a fun time. We were a small organization. We liked it that way. We grew a little bit here and a little bit there, but it was always organic. It was always on the basis of the needs of the youth that we were serving, and we said, you know we're missing that part of our continuum of care let's start for example a health care let's start a health clinic or let's start a culinary program etc uh, we never really wanted to get big we just wanted quality not quantity i had been there 9 years and was starting to think about moving on i wasn't unhappy things were going pretty well i just needed a new challenge And the most predictable thing at this point would have been to take another executive directorship in Chicago somewhere. I'd finally learned what it meant to be a nonprofit executive director. I was feeling confident in the role. And frankly, I was getting a little tired of not knowing what I was doing. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about doing something completely new. I didn't want to have to say again. I didn't know what I was doing, as I said. So something happened that was completely unpredictable. In December of 2009, we were able to um, 2009. I'm sorry, 2008. December of 2008, um, we went to our congressman, Danny Davis, and said, "Hey, we'd love to take our youth, some of our youth, to the inauguration of uh, uh, President-elect Obama. Uh, All of almost all of our youth were African American." And so we, we went to our congressman and asked for uh, inauguration tickets. These were very hard to come by, but he was very generous and gave us, I think, 10 tickets. So we took eight kids and another staff member, and I went to the inauguration. That was a wonderful, glorious time. Um, just a little side note, there were so many people there that on uh, the cold weather, you actually were warmed up by everybody. Uh, that you were standing next to because you were a sardine and you were like that for four hours. Uh, and many people who had tickets, they were different colored tickets for different locations on the Washington Mall. Many people that had tickets couldn't get in because it was too full. And of course, they were really disappointed and they figured, how could it be that they misjudged the number of tickets for the space we are in? And afterwards, and this is pretty typical of um, of things that go on in Washington, D.C., with all the great planning that's done for many very, very bright people, um, one thing that they didn't count on was what? Any guesses? Winter coats, and the size that winter coats take up. So many people, not not many, but a number of people, uh, could not get into their allocated space because of the winter coats and the space they took up. When um, when, uh, when I was in Washington, uh, I uh, visited a, f- a friend, actually he was a volunteer, remember I said we had a lot of volunteers at teen living programs, and uh, he was one of our volunteers. He had been a, um, an official in the Obama campaign. Uh, this was a 25-year-old young man uh, with a bachelor's degree in music. And um, he was very high up on the finance side of the uh, administration. Now, in politics, there is um, campaigning and there's governance. So what's going on right now, of course, is campaigning. And um, it's the case that if you're really a dedicated campaigner and if you're very talented, um, uh, you, you may be in line for a job within the administration, but that's governance and there are two different talents. Sometimes people have both of them. There is campaigning and there's governance, and sometimes those are two things that are far apart. This friend uh, and volunteer had been a part of the campaign, um, but he also was brought to Washington because of his talent in governance and managing, helping to manage the finances. So in my conversation with him, I happened to say to him, uh, by the way, Uh, you know, I've been at teen living programs for um, a little bit better than nine years now, and I'm starting to get a little restless. Um, Do you think that there's maybe something I can do uh, in the Obama administration? Now, when I asked that question, I didn't know a couple things. Um, I didn't know, for example, that he happened to work in the human resources arm of the administration for the president. It's called the Presidential Personnel Office. So he actually was able to, um, he, he did to, his responsibility was to do a lot of vetting of a lot of the people that had applied. I didn't know that part, so it was kind of an innocent question. Uh, and I also didn't know that there were uh, many thousands of people that had applied to be in the administration. If I would known that part, I wouldn't have asked the question, because I really didn't have any qualifications. Um, but he was in that kind of position, and he said, well, maybe I can help. And he asked me what it was that I thought I could do to help the administration. And I said, well, I have this religious background. I'd been a minister and uh, maybe, and i have been looking at um, uh, the President-elect Obama's faith-based um, enterprise. And I thought, well, maybe there's something I could do there. He said, okay. And so um, he, he asked which one of the faith-based centers, there's 13 of these centers that orbit around the White House. He wanted to know, Uh, Which one of the centers that I might want to work in and I looked at several of them and there was one at FEMA It was called the FEMA Center on his organizational chart So I said well, I said you know now I didn't know anything about disasters or emergencies. I've been working as a minister and there's disasters in that and I've been working in homeless work And there's disasters in that but not the kind of disasters that we're talking about But FEMA I thought about Mennonite Disaster Service I remembered the, uh, the, the volunteers from my home congregation in Portland, Oregon. My family had moved from Pennsylvania to Portland when I was just an infant. Uh, and I thought about Mennonite Disaster Service coming and talking uh, through the years and presenting on Sunday evenings. Uh, I thought about my own twin sisters, uh, who uh, they and their husbands uh, volunteered at times, months at a time, for Mennonite Disaster Service. And I thought, well, maybe I can find out about FEMA through Mennonite Disaster Service. So, uh, to make this longer story shorter, uh, from the time that I first talked to our volunteer in uh, January to the time that I was sitting in the seat as the director of the DHS Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, was about five months in May of 2009. So, against the odds, Not because I had given two or three years of my life campaigning for the president, not because I had made a large donation or done both, um, but because it was just against the odds. I didn't deserve it, and not because I was on, in any way, a predictable path to being a presidential appointee, I landed in Washington, D.C. And now you guessed it. For the first three years or so, pleased with vigor, Not so ever, whatsoever. I've been there almost seven years now, and I'm just starting to get the hang of it. I'm sure that if I'd be there another seven years, I would look back on that comment I just made and laugh at myself. Uh, Of course, I'll no longer have a job come next January. So once again, I'll probably be in that place where I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, is there a moral to this story? And how can there... Uh, uh, morals to stories are usually set up on predictable kind of things. You, you learn from things. But this is so unpredictable. How could there be a moral to something so unpredictable as this? But maybe that is the moral. That the only thing that's predictable is unpredictability. At least that's the way it's been in my life. That's the way my life has developed professionally. But there's one more thing, and I offer this to you for something that you may want to consider, especially if you're a student here. What's the one positive constant in the I didn't know what I was doing mantra? It's the word doing. I was always doing. Always moving forward, even though it felt like backwards. I didn't see it at the time. It felt like it was backwards, but I was moving forward. I was doing. Even though much of the time I was thrashing through the underbrush, I was still doing. So when you get to those places, those new and scary and confusing places, maybe you're in one right now. When you get to those places, maybe, just maybe, you're going to say something to yourself. Maybe, just maybe, it's going to be, I don't know what I am doing, and you'll do it anyway. Thank you. There is time for questions, um, so I'm happy to answer questions if you have any questions. I, I can't promise that I'll know what I'm doing in my answer, but I can try. You said that you had a crisis of faith that prompted you to pull out of the past, right. but what has happened since then with you and... and faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great question. I actually spent uh, the day yesterday in, what's the class called? I'm sorry. Learning community class, talking about uh, my journey of faith and unfaith. And uh, um, faith is a gift, and sometimes it feels like it's taken away. I certainly lost it. Um, I would say that um, it's a long story, but where I'm at now is I feel like I'm coming full circle with a new understanding in, um, of what faith actually is. Um, so yeah, it's a long story. I'd be happy to tell you. Um, yes? What have you learned about faith by being around so many politicians? I've learned that many of them say they have it. (laughs) (laughs) And what? That's not for me to judge. I mean, I I just hear what they say. And I I should just note that. uh, even though Washington is filled with politicians, my work very seldom um, uh, intersects with politicians. Um, I, I've, you know, I've met senators, I've, I've met um, you know, president, vice president, so on, met governors, uh, congressmen. Um, but those are just in passing. Those are just intersections who really I really am not around um, politicians nearly as much as I am around. Uh, stakeholders and in, in the field, and the partners that we have in the field. A lot of the partners that we have are the MDSs of the world. MDS is a member organization of something called National VOAD, which stands for Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster. And there are sixty plus individual organizations and state VOADS. So many of those are, are partners, and I tend I would certainly have a lot more. Um, uh, intersection and relationships with uh, with those folks. Your story is really inspiring um, to those
0: of us who it, it resonates for some who have also felt times of not knowing what we're doing. But I wonder if you could um, say a little bit
1: more about that to students who uh, might be some encouragement because um, they're thinking about the future sure. and what's next and um, Sure, you bet. Um, I know that uh, now there's great pressure into knowing what you're doing. I understand that. When I look at the ads on uh, TV, um, they're often with young people that seem to know exactly what they're doing. They're positive, they're upbeat, they're always on some device and that you know, the, the salvation of technology is always present, and so my guess is that there's tremendous pressure to know exactly what you're doing. Um, I would just say that if you were like me uh, as a student, um, I, I, would, I would have hope. Um, not because I'm in the position I'm in now, uh, because that, as I said, was sort of a confluence of luck and so on. Um, but because um, there, um, if, you, if you take um, what feels like two steps backward and one step forward, you probably are taking more steps forward than what you know and what you can see at the time. So if you're into a dead end, if you're into a tunnel, um, it, it's, it's, not the, um, it's not the pronouncement of your life. It's not the, the, the verdict of your life. It's a momentary thing. And you may go from that tunnel and that stuck place. If you keep moving, even if you're moving sideways or you feel like you're moving backwards, keep moving, keep moving some way. And somehow, I don't know how this happens, somehow light begins to form. And then you're going to go through another tunnel and another stuck place, and you're going to go through the same thing. And if you keep moving, if you keep pressing on, even if you can't get out of bed in the morning, even if you try to figure out how to, um, how to get out of bed in the morning, that's, a, that's an effort of keeping moving. So I would just say keep moving. I, I wish I had something more magical than that, but I don't. Hi, Jerry. What are some of the tough dilemmas that you get involved mm-hmm. in in moving from different communities, communities of faith, communities of action, mm-hmm. uh, and vice versa? Sure. Um, there was I did this little pivot in the middle of my presentation about the FEMA Center for Faith-Based Native Partnerships and the DHS Center for Faith-Based Center for Faith-Based Neighbor Partnerships. That's sort of an accident of history. Um, The center actually started in a component of DHS that got moved to FEMA, but the name never got changed. So most of the work that I do is within FEMA. I would say that um, working in FEMA, there have been very few dilemmas uh, that I've had to kind of navigate. Um, Occasionally there is one or two or three. Um, Some of them have to do with the First Amendment, and the, um, you know, not overstepping the lines of the First Amendment. Uh, I was giving a story last night about um, how uh, there was a, um, uh, a faith-based VOAD group, like MDS. It was another group, and they were um, uh, they were going to do some training that was a fill-in for um, training that the government would have funded, but the money hadn't come through yet, so they were going to do some training. So really, in some ways, they were voluntarily doing government work. They had a training manual, many-pages training manual, that um, uh, they didn't have enough copies of for their training, and so they went to a FEMA field office and said, could you copy these for us? Now. It was certainly a legitimate request, given that they were doing some of the government 's work in, in a fill in kind of way, um, but the training manual had um, it was more religiously based than what the government uh, uh, would have had um, and so um, when they asked this question in the field office, the field office got a hold of me and said, uh, What should we do here because uh, there was some religious language in the training manual. Now, um, there are times that I have my uh, former pastor, hat, pastoral hat on, and then there are times that I have my bureaucratic hat on, and most of the times, both are at the same time, but sometimes they get a little pushed. This was one of those times. So I asked what, the, uh, what the, um, the, the phrases were, and they told me, and I thought, well, you know, out of a 100-page training manual, I think that's going to be Okay. But I thought, I better check with the lawyers. So I checked with our lawyers there at FEMA headquarters, and they said, no, we can't do it. Um, and I argued with them. I argued on the basis that they're doing the work that we would normally do, but because of the snafu, we weren't able to do. But the, the, the lawyers won in that case. I lost, because I did advocate for this to, have, to happen. They, we lost uh, because, as the lawyers explained, you have um, different levels of authorities uh, based on the law in the United States. And when it's a constitutional authority, you don't mess with that at all. There's no, there's no kind of give and take. So they made the right decision according to the Constitution, according to their interpretation of the Constitution. I, would have, I advocated and um, would continue to advocate that that was a permissible thing that was a dilemma in FEMA. There are, there are other dilemmas that I've been in as a result. Because we are the DHS center, even though most of our work is within FEMA, there are times uh, when um, I have some moral choices to make around uh, DHS. Um, but most of the time, in fact, all the times I've been able to make those choices uh, and, and come away with a clear conscience. But there are times. Sure. Sure. Well, um, there are several kind of um, possibilities you work. Like, you, you could be in social work. You could be in like humanitarian aid, which is like a like international nonprofit kind of work. Um, I would just say um, it's really good to get a master's in social work um, or some kind of master's degree. Um, you don't have to. Short of that, it might be good to go volunteer for um, a a church volunteer program in a social work kind of position or you might um, actually, uh, this is a little plug for FEMA, FEMA has something called FEMA Corps uh, which is um, after you graduate from uh, college or even before, you can spend 10 months, it's like an AmeriCorps program in fact it is an AmeriCorps program but you're volunteering for FEMA and you go to disasters and help in disasters, you can do something like that but a master's degree in social work is there, in many ways, there's a real kind of union card, if you want to put it that way, for getting into those kind of positions. And then just be willing to do baseline work for a couple of years. Baseline, frontline, social service work, whatever you're doing. Um, one of the things that, and I'm not suggesting that you or any of your, uh, your fellow students have this kind of uh, feeling, but my experience when I was working in social services, is that um, sometimes uh, people that had just graduated from college or MSW work uh, wanted to do things very quickly. Um, and um, I'm kind of old school uh, so, and, and we were doing something, some things pretty creatively so we wanted to um, inculcate the new hires into the way that we did things and so we put them on the front lines and then we mentored them through that. So I would just say don't be too impatient about the next step be willing to do sort of the frontline work for a while, but it's great to know that you're thinking of that. And there are many, many opportunities out there uh, to do that. And you know, I would be happy to talk with you afterwards or stay in touch with you about you know anything that I'm aware of. Are, are you involved
0: in like a policy advocacy? And if so, how does that work? As uh, from your
1: religion? Sure. Great question. Um, the, uh, the one question was about policy, the other question was about advocacy, and those are two different things. Um, I'm involved in policy making um, related to everything, uh, especially uh, most recently about uh, how um, uh, tribes, Native Americans, can apply for disaster aid. There was a whole new law that came into being a couple years ago, and FEMA had to rework many of its policies around that, so I was involved in that. Advocacy, I um, that's not what government players can do. Uh, we can advocate within the government about, you know, this, this policy should go this way and not this way. But in terms of policy, advocacy, policy, I'm sorry, in terms of advocacy from the outside, um, that's a little more difficult. But it's an internal advocacy. But yes, I'm involved in policy making. In fact, just a note, uh, when you're part of an administration, when you're part of the political appointee world, um, you are expected to be the leaders in policy making. when um, people say elections have consequences, that's what it's that's what's meant is um, not just that you know you get to say you're part of the Obama administration or whatever administration, the Bush administration before me. Um, but you're, you are the ones that create the policy, and the long-term permanent staff, then are, are, um, their job is to uh, implement the policy, regardless. And so you have long-term people that have worked in FEMA and other agencies for 20 or 30 years. They see the policymakers come and go, and they see you know, Republicans and Democrats, and they've lived through all of them. Their job is to make the policy whatever the policy is by that administration go into effect.
0: Thank you, David. Um, Just want to note, I'm sure David is happy to speak in person with any of you. Thank you all so much for coming, and please join me in thanking David for his time here.